he was really the first actor to create the job description of screen actor. Uh, and this really took guts. And this is really the beginning of, of what became, you know, the modern screen actor. I'm Shannon. Thank you for listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. Today, I have the privilege of sharing the conversation I had with author and historian Terry Chester Shulman. Terry is the author of Film's First Family, The Untold Story of the Costellos. In this groundbreaking triple film biography, Terry brings to life the fascinating story of Morris Costello, the first bonafide movie star, and his beautiful daughters, Dolores and Helene, who grew up to be innovative and popular film stars in their own right. Despite their groundbreaking contributions to film and the phenomenon of movie stardom as we know it, the Costellos are surprisingly underappreciated today, probably best remembered for their connection to another film and stage family, the Barrymores. Dolores Costello is Drew Barrymore's grandmother. And with that, here's my conversation with Terry. Hi, Terry. How are you? Well, hello, Shannon. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. I am so excited to talk with you today, Terry, and I have to take a minute to compliment you on a rare gift that is such a part of your writing. I was oh immediately, goodness. yeah, I, I was immediately hooked with your very first sentence in Film's First Family. <laughs> so you are, you had my undivided attention from the start. <laughs> wow, I'm, I'm so honored. Uh, it's quite a story, you know, it, it, it kind of starts out all sweetness and light and then it just goes straight downhill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it gets kind of intense. Yeah. So I wanted to start off by asking you a bit about the background of Morris Costello. Absolutely. He's the first the Costello family to enter show business in the late 1800s. Yeah. And as you evidence in Film's First Family, he goes on to become the first great film star at basically the start of motion pictures on the East Coast. And yeah. Morris Costello, he didn't have an easy, easy beginning to show business, did he? No, they, they were, you know, literally dirt poor. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they struggled just to, to eat and to put a roof over their head. And he grew up in this teeming uh, working class neighborhood where just up the street, uh, there was a tenement that housed 20 families. Oh my gosh. I and mean, this, this is poverty really on, on, on the grand scale. And his, his mother um, had seven German borders. Uh, well, actually they were Eastern European and uh, they lived with, in the same house in Pittsburgh, oh. uh, another family, a, a German family, and they had borders. Oh. So, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine, you know, uh, growing up that poor. Yeah. Uh, and his way out uh, was, was vaudeville. And uh, be, because uh, he, he lived in a town that was, you know, full of Irish working class people, he, and, and being Irish himself or his, his family, um, he devises these, all these, you know, all these acts, uh, monologues and dances and songs. Yeah. It was called the Mick who threw the brick, <laughs> which I, I, I uh, include the lyrics, which got kind of yes. 
funny and really politically incorrect yeah. uh, in my book. But anyway, so, uh, you know, but and he kind of rose up, uh, rose through the ranks and he started in tent shows and wow. he moved his way up through um, what was called repertoire, which was basically vaudeville, but they traveled all over the country. Wow. Um, and then he gradually worked himself up to the legitimate theater and became, if not a star in Brooklyn, a, a, you know, a, a pretty popular performer, but he was always secondary right. and he would have phased out uh, if not, he just happened to be right at the perfect place at the perfect time in film history. Yeah. Um, and, and he took off. Yeah. So, and I want to ask you about that too, because um, you know, if I'm remembering correctly from the book, it took it took him about a decade to to get to uh, kind of a respectable position on the stage. Mm -hmm. But then he kind of uh, he he kind of took a bit of a risk by moving into films, right? Because at he that time, to. films weren't very respectable. It was kind of the uh, you know, if, if you were a legitimate stage star, you stayed away from motion pictures. Absolutely, Helene described it as being like. Uh, prostitution yeah oh <laughs> uh, that, that's her her exact description wow. uh and for this reason actors didn't want their names they didn't want to be known right uh and um the the studios all of which were based in the new york area didn't didn't want to uh credit them because they thought they would want more money and you know but but ultimately uh, in 1910, they all started to to be identified. Yeah, and uh, that's that's uh, and and he had the advantage of having these these glorious little dimples in his cheeks mm -hmm. that just drove people wild. Yes, yeah. Uh, what was and, his nickname? I, well, he started out. They, they he was the first actor, incredibly, to receive fan mail for a screen actor. Oh my gosh. And they, because they didn't know his name and it was addressed to the man with the dimples and finally just became dimples. And yeah. that's, that's what called him. Um, and, and then in, in October of 1910, um, the, the studio, Vitagraph Studio decided they were going to start promoting him by name and then he just exploded. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and there was no precedent for this. This was... No precedent for superstardom. Yeah. And he really was... Um, he was the first international star. It, it, it was thought that it's been claimed that Max Linder was, and he, Max Linder was a huge star in Europe, but nobody knew who he was in the United States or in England, but everybody knew uh, who Maurice Costello was. He was mobbed in Italy. Oh my God. Um, his films were shown in, in uh, Northern Europe, uh, in, in uh, the Netherlands. He was, he was really the first uh, star to, to, be internationally known. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if I may go on. Yes, you know, please. He, there, there's, you know, he, there are just so many firsts in this family, you know, uh, that, that it's, it's kind of incredible. Um, he was really the first actor to create the job description of screen actor. Uh, and this really took guts because in 1907, when he kind of started making uh, movies, um, it was typical for actors to do other jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, they were kind of jacks of all trades. Acting isn't what they did completely. Uh, they had to build sets and they had to sew costumes. Uh, Florence Turner, one of the first stars, was, was the cashier. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, <laughs> at, at, at Vinegraph. 
And he would have none of it. They handed in a hammer. Um, and, uh, you know, he said, I'm an actor. I don't build sets. And he stormed up to the front office. And this is really the beginning of, of what, what became, um, you know, the modern screen actor who right. just acted. Awesome. So, you know, a lot, a lot of, you know, that, it was, that was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you. I think you. Um, you mentioned a, a fellow actress who either I think she witnessed it, but um, she said something about him, um, literally with this act bringing I think it was nobility to the profession, and I just thought that was such right. perfect wording. Yeah, yeah. Well, she made it. Well, he made it a profession. For yeah, one thing. yeah. Um, and it's very well documented. Uh, you know, it was really a jaw-dropping uh, thing to, to see this someone actually stand up to the film industry as it was to that time and said, right. you know, we're, we're actors. And it was also marked the change between we're ashamed to be actors mm -hmm. to we're proud to be actors. Right. You know, this, and he saw all this really before uh, and anybody else who, who, uh, you know, really became important in the profession. That, that gives him, him a lot of historical uh, importance. For sure. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, in an interview that he gave, I think kind of in retrospect, looking back at his early career, saying that he was one of the first actors to also uh, tell the studio, hey, give me screen credit here. Give my co-stars screen credit. Our name. Right are right. marketable for your film. We, we will help your film do better. With, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and that's huge today. And, you know, as we all know, sometimes it's the star name that sells the film, not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he should get a lot of credit for seeing this when, when no one else did. Yeah. Uh, he also created, uh, and all these things, um, you know, I thought, well, this just sounds it's too amazing, but it, it was documented by so, so many different people contemporaneously. Um, he created the first really documented school of screen acting. He called it the slow motion uh, method uh, wow. because he said, you know, when I, when I saw myself on the screen for the first time, I was just horrified <laughs> because everybody was you know, flying around. Right. And he, uh, he, physically slowed the movements of actors down to compensate for that. And if you look at his films at, at Vitagraph and, you know, 1911, 1912, mm -hmm. they look like um, the picture idol uh, yes. is almost a modern film and it's on YouTube. You know, yes. it's, it's fantastic. It has, it has really the first great hilarious eating scene <laughs> in it. Uh, it's just a wonderful film. It, it's it's as fresh as as it was, you know, the, the day it came out. Unlike most films from that time, right? Um, and and yeah. it's so true. I actually, you you so piqued my interest in the picture idol oh, did you in, see it? in the book. Yes, that I immediately was like, I got to see this. So I I got on, searched it on YouTube, found it, and I watched. And yeah. I mean, your description it is dead on accurate. He it's only fifteen minutes, so you know it's it's not not a big investment in, in oh yeah yeah and it's art. completely free and it's just there and yeah he he really is Morris I mean his, his acting is timeless in that he is 
Yeah. He really, and really, I feel like overall it's, it's, it is really just a a fun film, but his performance in particular, I mean, you just, it, it is not the stereotypical, sped up kind of fast motion that, that right. we expect. And, and you appreciate that so much more, um, with the context of he was the first one to do this. And yeah. this was, yeah. this was his film innovation. It, it yeah. kind of, kind of made me think like, you know, of course he's not doing the method style of acting per se, but you know, no. he was, it, you know, in many ways, this was like the precursor to, you know, Marlon Brando and James Dean, all, Montgomery Clift, these guys who brought the Absolutely. method. Absolutely. He had that star quality, yeah. you know, he had this, this towering presence uh, on, on the screen. And uh, he was really the, the, the first uh, documented uh, person to, to really break out in that way. That's so cool. Yeah. So I did uh, notice in, in, in the book, as, as you're telling his life story, it was very interesting. Um, his marriage to, to his wife, May, was never completely rosy, but that's so true. Interestingly enough, it seems like things just kind of, you know, he found this gargantuan success in films and things in his personal life just kind of went downhill. They did. They were at their best when they were poor. Success ruined them. So ironic because they worked so hard and and so long. Um, And he, uh, you know, they they would eat peanut butter because they couldn't afford, you know, to 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 buy food. Wow. and, 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 and when they took off, and part of it was because um, there had never been a star right. uh, in, the, in, in this modern you know, sense of, this, this, uh, of superstardom. Uh, and you know, by the time Valentino and later actors in, in the 20s came in, they, they sort of knew what to expect, right. um, particularly from the opposite sex and um, you know being mobbed and adored right. and get, and he would they would uh, haul in two huge full sacks of, of fan mail from a, yeah. adoring you know his 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 adoring um, you know uh, for moviegoers right and uh, and and may kind of flipped out yeah uh, and and these uh, you know I, I include some some of these letters you know they were proposals of marriage yeah. <laughs> And I don't have it in front of me, but in, when they they went around the world, really the, the first uh, kind of filmmaking expedition. And there's this letter from this Italian fan who uh, she'd never met him, but uh, she she speaks to him like they'd been married for 30 years. Oh, my gosh. I remember so, that letter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, even though his wife is there, she says, you know. Uh, yes, I I understand. I saw your beautiful wife and lovely children, but you know maybe there's a you know a chance for us. And, oh my gosh! You know, so, yeah. <laughs> so so nothing you know no actor had really inspired this kind of adoration right. before. And and May you know had a really was insanely jealous, and also Maurice Costello had what Dolores called an angry temperament. Uh huh. He wasn't a nice guy. Uh huh. Um, and when he drank, he was you know. He was even angrier. Right. Uh, so he, he was a difficult person. Right. Uh, but they pay him back. 
you know, in the twenties. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I was really fortunate in, in that I found, and no doubt you read some of his, his rage filled entries uh, from when John Barrymore comes onto the scene. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he, he was just stunned and infuriated. And he said, well, they treat him like a tin Jesus. Oh my gosh. Was, yeah. That's <laughs> great. And, uh, and all this is, is documented because he, uh, as, as a psychiatrist, psychiatrist, who I know pointed out his diary was his only friend. It was the yeah. only place that he could really confide. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just pours his heart out and his, his furious anger uh, at not so much John Barrymore, but at Dolores and May who treat right. him, treat Jack like God. Right. And, and he's not, and Maurice is, is, is prohibited from going to openings. He can't sit at the dinner table with them when Jack comes over. Wow. Uh, you know, he's kind of like Cinderella. Yeah. You know, they, so they pay him back for, for all, all the bad things that he did when, when uh, he had the income and then right. when, when Dolores had the on income. Top. Yeah. yeah. And he said, he said, yes, I'm broken. They, you know, remind me of it every, every single day. Right. Uh, so it's really, really quite a terrible time. And yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. So, so kind of, um, you know, bringing, uh, Dolores and Helene into the story at, at this point. So yeah. the Morris's career, basically he reaches these huge heights and then just downward spiral and right. they're, they're back in poverty, but Dolores yeah. is beautiful and yes. she gets a little older and all of a sudden She's getting work as a model. You you mentioned yes. she gets a few film contract offers, and all yes. of a sudden the Costello women are in Hollywood. And yes. and as you say, this is this is their choice. Morris, he he's not so on board with this. He it takes yes. him a while before he comes uh, yes. and and stays with them. But as you say, the the tables have now turned. He is he's not the one making the money now. That's right. That's right. And, and he's really at their mercy. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he, as he writes, they call him a bum. Oh my gosh. And, uh, you know, they, they, they're, they're, they're pretty sadistic. Yeah. Uh, and they, they treat him pretty badly. And then he leaves finally, you know, he can't take it anymore. And all this time he's been trying to get work and he gets little work. Uh, as an extra and a supporting player in right. films, right? And he he saves his money. And he buys a car and and he moves out. But he he moves uh, really close by so he can spy on. That's just crazy. And there's this this whole <laughs> this whole period where he sits out uh, in front of their house. On, on, uh, unfortunately, the house is gone. They put a freeway through it. Oh. Uh, but he sits out and and uh, jots down their comings and goings and when John Barrymore is there right. and when he and, and Dolores have gone out. Um, so, yeah, he gets pretty, pretty obsessed. But then he gives up because he takes Buster, the family dog, to his new digs and they steal Buster back. Oh, my God. And then he just, you know, he just <laughs> can't stand it anymore. And he just kind of moves, moves on right. for the moment. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. 
Um, so, so John, John Barrymore and Dolores Costello, um, they are Drew Barrymore's grandparents. That is correct. But, um, Morris was very much against the marriage and, um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, You point this out in the book. There's a little bit of history repeated here in the sense that, you know, Dolores, she, she was able to, she was old enough to see the effects of stardom and and alcohol on the marriage of her parents but then yes. she goes she goes on to marry uh basically her, her. father in a sense exactly. there are a lot of parallels between john barrymore and morris costello yes yes there's there's deep psychology going on here uh, that presumably she was not aware of basically marrying the closest imaginable person uh, to to her father, they were both great stars. They were both really handsome. They were both alcoholics. Right. You know, they both had. Uh, they were both pat- pathologically jealous. Yes. Uh, yeah. And interestingly, and to his credit, Morris uh, saw this. He saw himself, and and he said that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, he also had so much uh, jealousy of Jack. Mm-hmm. And he resented Hollywood. And so all these things, you know, com- combined together to create this really untenable civil war in, in, right. in the home. Uh, and and it, it's been said that John Barrymore broke up their family, which is uh, their family was on its last legs, really. And he was just sort of the, he delivered the coup de grace. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and that was it. And they had a huge explosion. Um in 27. And that's, uh, that's when Maurice moved out. Yeah. And, and it, it was so huge that, I mean, he wasn't even invited to the wedding, was he? No, no, he wasn't. I he just, wasn't. that's just yeah. crazy. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, I, I think they all underestimated the power of Dolores because, uh-huh. you know, you look at her on screen and she looks like a, a stiff breeze could just kind of blow her away oh yeah and she played this sort of madonna like and in 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 the sound era she kept being hired to play mother parts right there's something about her persona on screen that is so nurturing yes but she was really not that yeah (laughs) not that person um she uh had really uh wonderful qualities in that when uh, the chips were down, she was there yes. for her family, but she was not warm and she not a person who, who hugged or um, said, I love you to any of, of, of her family. Um, when one of her grandchildren said, I love you, mom, mom, she said, oh, no, you don't. Yeah, I remember reading that she was unapproachable kind of in in a lot of ways but um you know this this seems to have have happened uh but before her breakup with jack with john barrymore Mm -hmm. uh her honeymoon diaries which you you might have read which are these remarkable artifacts that have survived yeah um She's a totally different person. She's young and in love and adores him and just pouring her, her heart out. 
Yeah. Uh, not the person that she became. So it's, uh, I, I think he broke her heart. Yeah. And I don't think she ever really recovered yeah. from that. And she, I don't think she ever really trusted again. And I don't think she ever really gave of, of her herself, um, you know, in any kind of deep emotional way right. after them. Yeah. So kind of uh, on the Barrymore and, and the Dolores marriage here, um, you know, you mentioned he, he broke her heart. Um, I just did a series on Catherine Hepburn on the podcast uh-huh. and, yeah. um, I'm sure you're familiar. Uh, John Barrymore was the big star in Kate's first Hollywood film, uh, 1932's yes. Bill of Bill Divorcement. Yeah. Yes. And Kate has some, some really, I think, fascinating stories she, she shares about their interactions. And the first one is, of, you know, uh, she arrives at Hollywood and she's got, um, her eyes are just bright red because on the train ride over these steel filings, they, they come off the track and they just hit her right in the eye. And so she goes to the studio, she meets John Barrymore and, uh, and he assumes, ah, here's a fellow alcoholic. And, uh, he has this vial of uh, eye drops and he says here, just put two drops in each eye. No one's going to be able to tell, you know, you're going to look great. And I just thought, okay, like, even though he was wrong about why her eyes were red, that was a pretty generous thing to do. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he was very gracious um, on a professional level, not so much on a personal level. Yes. Um, But, you know, as, as jealous as he was of his wives personally, he uh, encouraged that all of their, their careers and did what, what he could, for them, especially uh, Dolores. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he made her a star. Yeah. Now, and, and would you say, um, you know, comparing the careers of, of Dolores and Helene, um, you know, Dolores was the one who became a superstar. Yes. Um, would you say that had she not married John Barrymore and, and had his kind of helping hand, would she have still achieved superstardom? Was that the difference? That's a good question. It's been written that he made her a star and, and he did. And um, I, I think he made her a star much more quickly. Uh-huh. She had already starred right. uh, in, in a film uh, before that. And Jack Warner really had high hopes for her. So it's, and I mean, just look at her. She, she's yes. the most photogenic person that ever was yeah. on the screen. So it's not unreasonable to think uh, that she would have been a star, right. but, you know, but she was playing opposite Jack. She, yeah. uh, that really helped things along. For sure. Um, but, you know, also uh, her, her career uh, came to a screeching halt uh, in, uh, in 1930 uh, when she had Dee Dee, mm-hmm. uh, who is still alive and well. Uh, wow. You're, uh, viewers might be interested to know and um and there was a a clause in her contract that if she became uh, pregnant that warner brothers could terminate it oh wow yeah it's pretty pretty horrible wow um but you know you couldn't couldn't boss dolores around and she became pregnant uh with Didi, and um between they forgave that. And then she made uh, a film called Expensive Women in 1931. But then she became pregnant again with John, who was Drew's father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they, you know, they terminated her. Wow. And she was okay with that because 
you know, um, fate is, is, is kind of cruel in the sense that Helene really wanted to be the star. She right. would have been so at home, you know, as a star, but Dolores was fairly pretty domestic right? and really wanted a home and children and uh, a, a great husband like, uh, like Jack, uh, which he was in the beginning, but uh, that didn't, didn't hold up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's such a huge story. You know, I'm I'm trying to fill in as much as I can. I mean, it's a hundred years, yeah, uh, film history right. that I crammed into this this book. Um, so there's there's a lot to talk about. I, oh yeah, you know, oh yeah. Well, people, of course, you know, listeners are they're going to have to read your book to get the whole story because there is there is no way there is no way we can we can cover it all and and it, yeah. it's hard because it is also fascinating to just to just focus in on a few things. Um, yeah. but I, I do want to, I do want to ask you, so, so we, we've discussed Dolores and, and, and her career and, and her marriage that to, to John Barrymore, which was yeah. you know, headline grabbing career making sure. and in some ways eventually for Dolores career breaking as, as we just discussed. Right. But, um, right. interestingly enough, um, I feel like in many ways, Helene's career was actually the one that was more groundbreaking. Um, and, and her personal life was perhaps even more of a soap opera than her sister. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, well, uh, as the star of, of, the, of the first all-talking picture, The Lights of New York in 1928, um, as she kind of trumped, sorry, uh, Dolores, <laughs> <laughs> in in the sense in the sense that uh, she's the one who made history, right? I mean, in, in a huge huge way. Yeah. And the story of the making of this film, which took eight days. Oh my gosh. Um, and uh, Brian Foy, the the director, kind of lied to Jack Warner, and said he was just going to make a short film, but Warner went off to Europe and gave him $30,000. So he had no money and no time. And he puts together this horrible movie. I mean, but, you know, uh, it's fascinating to see, you know, the technical obstacles that these people really couldn't try their best. There's a scene where uh, Helene uh, flubs her line. Right. And they kept it in the movie. Yes. I, again, Yes, you so intrigued me in the book. I had to find it on YouTube. So oh, I, good. I, yeah, I found the exact spot. It was like that's exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, they're they're just you know they're they're struggling obviously, um, but it's this this great you know historical uh, record of what went went into and what should have gone into the making of this movie, but there right. just wasn't enough time to really to really make a, a better movie. Right. Um, so, but, but, you know, uh, unfortunately it didn't really help her career. She, she was just unlucky. Yeah. Uh, she, she also was overshadowed uh, by Dolores, yeah. um, who I, I think is, is physically more uh, magnetic right. as a star, but um Helene, uh, Helene, uh, if if she had had some better breaks, I, I I think she she would have gone a lot farther. And also, there was her physical decline. Yeah. Because uh, as early as 1928, um, she didn't realize it was tuberculosis. Wow. 
at the time, but she she just uh, that that really made made it impossible for her to really uh, continue on. She probably would have survived into the coming of sound. She had a perfectly good voice. She did, um, but she was just ill. Yeah, uh, a, a lot. And I I um I wonder too. I wanted to ask you. You know, she's in this 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 the first full length talking film momentous um but you know in addition to her her health problems um she also had some interesting uh personal life uh drama that um isn't that the truth yes and i wonder do you think um you know i'll i'll let you you know (laughs) share share about her her interesting marriages and 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 divorces and things but do you feel like some of these stories that came out of her romances perhaps hindered her career as well no doubt no doubt i mean her uh, divorce from lowell sherman who was a big star and a noted uh, successful director, both at the same time, wow. um, really uh, made it impossible for her to make any kind of a comeback because it was so hugely scandalous. It was really the, I, I think, the first major uh, scandalous uh, movie star divorce. Chaplin had one, but it was more, it was more of a of a uh, I don't know a, a sexual abuse case, really. Wow. Mm-hmm. than a, you know, a modern, you know, crazy, you know, typical right. uh, Hollywood divorce. Um, but uh, he accused her of uh, being a reader and a collector of pornography. Yes. And, you know, imagine being accused of that as a woman in 1930. Exactly. And um, yeah, that even, even though she said, and probably right. Uh, the evidence is so flimsy mm-hmm. that he pasted her book plate <laughs> in his books. Oh my god! Um, yeah, he was a pretty. This this doesn't show him in a in a particularly favorable light. Yeah. Um, and you know, he still he he did a lot of awful things, and he had this horrible mother who who ruled him, uh, and um, but you know, it's also kind of sad that. As soon as this scandalous divorce was over in 1934, he he got uh, he got um, I, I guess it was pneumonia, uh, and he died oh. while he was making the first Technicolor oh, uh, right. movie, Becky Sharp. Yeah. So yeah, he never got a chance to really tell his side right. of the story either. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah, but that that on top of everything else, that that kind of uh, put the kibosh on any possibility that Helene would ever come back. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and then what's so interesting too, like you mentioned that, you know, Dolores was, was more of a fighter and Helene was, was more of a lover. And yeah. she goes from, from this marriage, which after all of the, after all of the mudslinging, you kind of think, oh, you know, there's, there's, there's no way, there's no way anything in her love life can top this. But then, yeah. then she goes to Cuba. Then she goes to Cuba and marries <laughs> Musi, Musi del Barrio, um, who's, who's also controlled by his uh, very powerful, wealthy mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, another terrible stroke of Helene luck. 
um, Cora won't let them live uh, apart from her. They have to live in her in in Cora's house. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Musi rebels and they get a a little farm uh, nearby, but she she holds the purse strings and, you know, their money runs out. And uh, Musi has to choose between the money and Helene and he chooses the money. Wow. Yeah. And his mother. Yeah. Um, And he was starting up a... uh, a, a film company in in Cuba, but there was so much political unrest that you know it made that impossible. Right. So so much uh, might have happened that yeah. didn't. Yeah, and and Helene was kind of looking at that as potentially her yeah. new path to stardom. Right? He he yes, he buys it. her. He wow. they have this empty film studio, and he gives it to her. Wow. And they you know they go gallivanting around documenting the the civil war that was going on and. You know, she's in the line of fire and, and, and wow. bullets are flying by. And, and but again, there, there was this um, she was robbed. These jewel thieves came yeah. and tied her to a tree in a raging storm, which didn't help yes. <laughs> problems at all. Right. I, I was fortunate um, in that her daughter, Elaine's daughter, Deirdre, is a lot also alive and well. Wow. And Deirdre really was the inspiration um, and really gave me permission to do this uh, the way I was able to do it with full access to um, her own archive. That's amazing. Uh, And in it, I discovered that Helene had written an autobiography. It was only 40 pages, 44 pages. And some of it... Uh, actually, there was an outline to it anyway, and some of it got published, but I don't think anybody ever read it. And it was really, oh. no one really knew it existed. But without that, I mean, it filled in so, so much of, of you know, what before that didn't exist in terms of research right. material for their right. story. So that was that was a, a pretty great uh, um, just discovery. Oh, for sure. As I was going through all of, all of those things. Yeah. Well, and, and um, from the excerpts that you share uh, in the book in, in Films First Family from, from Helene's autobiography, like she's a, she's a good writer. This is, these are she very interesting writer. things here. Like why, why do you think she never found a publisher for her, for her whole manuscript? Well, it's, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Um, she, she did get some of it published and it, it could have, I, I mean, you would think that that something was published in the Los Angeles uh, Examiner and had this kind of of exposure that some some publisher would have said, "Let's let's go on, let's go with it." But again, it was you know she just uh, she just had a lot of bad luck throughout her life, right? Um, all all through you know uh, up until the end. I mean, even even though she lived into the era of antibiotics, which you know, more or less cured her TB. Mm-hmm. Um, by that time, uh, she had become addicted yeah. to these drugs that were prescribed. Right. Um, and morphine was one of them and barbiturates were, were, were also prescribed. Um, and then she meets young Lee LeBlanc, mm-hmm. uh, who turns out to be another abusive person. 
Right. Uh, and really goes for her jugular in the fight for Deirdre, who I just mentioned. Yes. For, for their custody fight, which which I have to go go into a lot, and it, it's hard to read. Yeah. Um, and Deirdre's, you know, still alive, and yet she gave me, she she was really a champion of, of, uh, you know, whatever whatever happened, I want you to, to discuss and and use for your book. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, and I want to ask you, um, with everything, you know, the, the end of the LeBlanc marriage and, and these custody battles over Deirdre, it was very interesting for me, D- Dolores's role in all of this. You know, it seemed like she wanted to, to help her sister and, uh, and yeah. take custody of, of Deirdre, but only to yeah. a point. There were, there were very... I mean, what seems like as someone reading this, this story, these very minor points she gets hung up on in the grand scheme of things. Um, it was hard. It was hard to, you know, every time she did something good, uh, every time Dolores did something good and admirable, it was kind of outweighed by something that was really crummy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's so true. Um, because, uh, you know, on one hand, she agreed to temporarily adopt Deirdre while Lee LeBlanc and Helene were going through their problems and Helene was going through her physical problems. Um, but she kind of chokes at the last minute. Right. Where she had she said, OK, I'll continue, you know, I'll help out. I'll continue to be part of it. She forces the judge really to come to a decision that's unfavorable to Helene. Yeah. And I don't think Helene ever really forgave her for that because it resulted directly. Uh, it's possible that Dolores didn't realize yeah. that it would have that effect. Um, but, but uh, I doubt it. Also, um, Dolores was a uh, really a, a domestic person. And as she once or more than once said to her daughter, I want to have 10 children. I would, or I would have 10 children if I could. Right. And to have to give up, uh, you know, have to be this kind of foster parent to Deirdre, who I think she was falling in love with, yeah. uh, was incredibly difficult and incredibly yeah. painful. Uh, and she might've just said, you know, at the end, I just can't to herself. I just right. can't go through this anymore we're just going to end this. And it ended, but unfortunately it ended with Deirdre going to the wrong parent. And that's Lee LeBlanc who never should have been awarded custody. That was just a terrible uh, judicial decision on the part of, of of the judge in that case. Right. Um, And I think it's, it's very neat. Um, You, you do such a good job getting this across in the story. Um, I feel like, despite um, everything that happened to Deirdre with this, she really has like nothing but wonderful things to say about Dolores and her mother. It seems like she had very special relationships with both women through, through all of this. Yeah. Well, especially her mother. Yeah. Because, you know, when you grow up pining for your mother. Yeah. uh, And she's, you're just allowed kind of short-lived visits. They, they, it seemed like they would be able to live together for a while 
uh, at the Wolf's Sanitarium, where uh, you know Lee LeBlanc uh, realized very quickly that he wasn't really all that interested in being a father and mm-hmm. farmed her out to various uh, Catholic boarding schools, which she hated. And for, for a brief period, she was allowed to live uh, with Helene and they had a, a wonderful idyllic time together. Um, and and you know, tragically, it, it looked like towards the end of Helene's life that Deirdre would finally, all she wanted to do was to take care yeah. of her mother. Uh, but it was really too late by that point because um, even though Helene was you know, no longer ill, with consumption, she was on all the all these medications that she had become har- horribly dependent on, and again, that's not her fault. You know, these yeah. were all prescribed by doctors. Right. Um, she was injecting herself, and this was you know, this was pres- uh, you know prescribed uh, you know tr- treatment by her her doctor that as needed right. that she should be allowed to you know inject herself with whatever. The medications were and one of them was morphine horribly yeah uh so and you know then what happened uh, happened yeah at the end of the yeah i won't spoil it for exactly me. yep and so kind of you know it's as we wrap things up here um sure i i feel like uh you know the the costellos it's a fascinating story all three of them, you know, as I, I kind of mentioned with Dolores, it was it was a bit of a roller coaster of emotions for me. They do something that was really cool and really admirable, yeah. and and then and then they do something that was uh, not so admirable. Um, so I just kind of I found myself having yeah. these love hate relationships with all three of them, particularly Dolores. Um, yeah. But yeah. I want to ask you as the as the definitive biographer on these three stars, what was your feeling at the end of, at the end of the book, after finishing their story, did you, did you like them? What was your takeaway? Well, uh, they're very complicated. And, you know, I started out thinking, well, Maurice was bad. Dolores was bad. Helene was good. But um, I, I, kind of uh, my feelings about them evolved to see them all as in in many ways victims of their time uh, and of each other and um, you know I I think if they'd grown up now (laughs) there'd be therapy yeah you know or or there'd be treatment for alcoholism and there'd be all these things and um, had uh, had had there been uh, antibiotics, you know, Helene would have cured her tuberculosis and all, all these what ifs. Yeah. So I, I found myself uh, with really nothing but, but compassion yeah. and understanding uh, and uh, not being judgmental yes. of who they were. Because, you know, um, there's this question of license. You know, if, if you contribute this great thing to the history of movies on one hand that will last forever and maybe you're not such a great person maybe we should concentrate on what what is eternal and what's what they really have given right to to art and yeah. to to the history of film and that's kind of you know they, they weren't bad people ultimately they were people who couldn't surmount 
you know, the, the problems that, that they had and, and, you know, things like poverty and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, there were just forces at work in filmmaking that they, they could not control right. to a great degree. And it kind of, it kind of hurt them all as, as, as a family and, and as, as people. Yeah. Well, and, and again, you know, your, your book, you do such a fabulous job um, showing just every, every aspect and, and nuance of, you know, their, their film accomplishments and, and uh, just all facets of their life. These are your, you are presenting real people and it, it, it comes across in the book and anyone who wants to, to learn more about film history in general and the Costello's place in it, they need to read your book. Well, I hope they do. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and just a, a quick, a, a quick shout out to uh, our listeners today. You can find Terry's book, Film's First Family, The Untold Story of the Costellos, at the University Press of Kentucky website, um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and I'm going to have direct links on my website, Vanguard of Hollywood, to take you directly well, you. to, yes, yes, of course. Also, if, if I can add this, it's coming out in paperback in September, so it's uh, a little less expensive than, than the hardbound one, and... Um, you can put your orders in uh, pre-order. Awesome. Well, Terry, <laughs> thank you so much for being here with me today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and getting your expert insights on the fascinating Costello family. Well, it's been a pleasure for me too. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Terry Chester Shulman. Be sure to head on over to my website, vanguardofhollywood.com, and search Costello Family for links to where you can purchase Films First Family on Amazon and University Press of Kentucky. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. And join me next time on Vanguard of Hollywood as I introduce my next star spotlight, Doris Day.